2. Chapter 2. Last week, we somewhat concluded a three-week focus on Martin Luther himself, who's kind of the center and the the, uh, embodiment, uh, personally, of the Reformation, in its doctrines, in its force and strength. Um, We're shifting a little bit this morning. We're going to go back and uh, catch up with some of the other men that we had had uh, introduced earlier in the in the first couple of weeks, but uh, last week with Luther, we we essentially followed him through those th- three great clashes in Germany that he had with the uh, forces of Rome of the Pope. We followed him through Augsburg, and then Leipzig. That's in the years 1518 and 1519, and then 1521 at the Diet of Worms, which was the climax, uh, really the point of no return as far as the, the uh, Reformation was concerned. And uh, we ended with the Edict of Worms, which the Holy Roman Emperor had uttered, uh, which essentially condemned Luther, who had already been condemned by the Church. If you remember the papal bull, the Exerge Domine, had, had rendered Luther a heretic of the church. And now, under the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, he was declared an outlaw, an enemy of the state. So, so the combined forces of church and state now were, uh, were opposed to the very life and the doctrine of Martin Luther. That's how we ended last week. Now, 1521 marks a point and the Diet of Worms marks a point at which we can begin to look all over Europe in the various countries and see the same principles at work. Uh, the Word of God being preached, being published in the languages of the people in their native tongues, which they had not had. Uh, and, and that uh, unleashed, as it were, the, the power of the gospel. And it was a veritable revival. There's no question about it. There was a spiritual awakening that was beginning to spread like fire throughout Europe and in England as well, which we'll touch on uh, briefly. Uh, not very much. That's a, I mean, that's a whole study in itself to look at the Reformation as it took place in England under Henry VIII and with men like Tyndale and Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. In many ways, like what we're... Uh, discussing here, but there were distinctives in the English Reformation. So we see these two things, and this is what this text brings out somewhat. We see the the clamping down and the persecution and the oppression that was beginning to come from Rome downward against the preachers and the preaching and the message and the doctrine of the gospel as it's found in Scripture. Uh, but then on the other hand, we see the flourishing. It's very much like the, the, the early chapters of the book of Acts. You see these two things coupled together. The going out of the word of God and the uh, clamping down and the oppression on it. Those two things together. And that's what we're going to kind of follow this morning somewhat in these men that we've already uh, been introduced to. So let's open with Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This sums up what we're talking about this morning as we look at these men and these events. Verses 8 through 10. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. 
Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen. Let's open together in prayer. Father, we ask you for your gracious presence this morning, which we need. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we concluded last week with with Luther uh, departing under the safe passage that uh, Charles V had promised, and he kept his promise. So Luther left, and then the Edict of Worms was published, which condemned him and instructed all all of the princes uh, and rulers of every country in the Holy Roman Emperor to seize him at all costs, not to give him harbor, to give him food or drink or anything. So he's on the run. He's a marked man, and uh, he headed back to Wittenberg, which would have been, if you were looking at a map of Germany, uh, from, from Worms, Wittenberg is going to be to the northeast of Worms by about 300 miles. Well, right in between those two points of Worms and Wittenberg is the little town of Eisenach, and it was there that the, the, the Wartburg Castle was and still is to this day. You can go there today. Uh, well, Luther disappeared on his walk back to Wittenberg, and uh, many feared the worst because they knew that he was a wanted man. He disappeared. Uh, the fear was that the Pope's men had captured him and were dragging him back to Rome uh, to be expedited there. Uh, well, that's not what happened. What, what had happened, and many of you already know this story, he was kidnapped, quote unquote, by the men of Frederick the Wise of Saxony, uh, who was helping Luther. Uh, He had to do it secretly because he was one of those princes that had been instructed to seize Luther, not to give him harbor. Uh, But he sent his men to to kidnap Luther and take him to Eisenach at the Wartburg Castle. And Luther was put in hiding there. And uh, in fact, over the months, he was there for almost a full year, I think about 11 months after the Diet of Worms, secreted away. And uh, he grew a a beard. He went by the name of Junker George, or Junker George, basically he's like a a knight or some kind of a a nobleman. Uh, uh, And he walked around the property in that disguise of his beard. So uh, those were interesting months. And at the end of the hour this morning, we'll return to Luther and see what was occupying him there at the Wartburg Castle. But before that, we want to come to these other men. So let's look back at Melanchthon just for a moment. Melanchthon had not gone. He had gone, if you remember, to Leipzig with with Luther. He did not go to Worms. He was working, in fact, on what would become the first systematic theology of the Reformation. Melanchthon, remember that, that pious genius, that sanctified genius of a young man, a prodigy, he, he was working on a, a textbook, a, 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 a manual of theology for his students at the University of Wittenberg. Well, it, it turned into something more than just for his students. It, it became, as I said, this great systematic theology, the first of the Reformation. 
He called it the, the loci communis. That's the Latin term. Basically means basic theological themes or categories. So he was systematizing, putting in the right categories all of the great doctrines of the Bible. Uh, I, in, in the bottom of your handout, you see a few, just, just uh, a, a few comments from him, from that loci communis, which I, I drew out of that, which I think are very good and thought-provoking. His purpose in writing this, he said, and I'm quoting him now, is he said, is not to call students away from Scripture, but rather to summon them to the Scriptures if I can. There is nothing I desire more than that all Christians be occupied in the greatest freedom with the divine Scriptures alone and be thoroughly transformed into their nature. Well, this... It's a, it's a great quote. I, I, I must read this again. His desire, he said, was that all Christians be occupied in the greatest freedom with the divine scriptures alone and be thoroughly transformed into their nature. Well, this is he, he's summing up, uh, purposefully or not, the essential burden of the entire Reformation, that all Christians with great freedom would be engaged in the scriptures to be transformed thoroughly into their nature. That, that's the essence of the whole Reformation. The word of God and that which is within it. Well, this was Melanchthon's great burden. He, uh, he says, I, I want to mention this too, he says, he says he wishes to summon his students to the scriptures, quote, if I can. And that's, that's, that's a telling distinction between Melanchthon and Luther. Luther would have said the same thing that Melanchthon had said here, except he would not have said, if I can. Uh, the personality of the two men here really come, comes out. I mean, uh, you see Melanchthon's relative diffidence, his, his lack of confidence, not in the word itself, but in his ability to promulgate it, to express it, to be effectual in the teaching and in the preaching of it. Uh, he, he lacked the self-confidence that naturally you can see in Luther, Luther's uh, temerity is a great contrast to Melanchthon's. And, and, and certainly personality was a part of it. But also, and I think this is important to note, you remember Luther's great and mighty struggle. As far as we know, what we have on record, Melanchthon didn't go through this great, uh, lengthy struggle that Luther had gone through to gain uh, assurance of salvation, to understand the way of justification and acceptance with God, uh, which is fine. That, that's completely normal in the Christian life. Uh, the crisis uh, of coming to faith can be greater or less in terms of the struggle of it. There's no set pattern. Uh, but we know, because it's on record, what Luther went through, and many of us have experienced that to a greater or lesser degree. In principle, every Christian experiences the same thing. The manifestation of the pain, the struggle that we go through, uh, the difficulties that we grapple with, depend on all kinds of other factors. But I, I would venture to say that Luther's exceedingly bold confidence in the Lord and in these doctrinal matters and in his fight against Rome, that boldness sprang from that abyss of turmoil that he had gone through. And when he came out of it, here was a man who, who was, was uh, 
utterly transformed. And Melanchthon, lacking that deep experience, perhaps, as I said, had a little more diffidence. And so, I, I, in a way of application for you young people, I just think it, it, this is a, a helpful encouragement when you look at Luther and Melanchthon and when you look at Luther's struggle. Don't be afraid of a mighty struggle. Uh, you're in the Lord's hands. And his instructions is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord who works in you to do, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's what he did in Luther. And, and uh, you may or may not grow up to be of the caliber of Luther, but my, my simple point is don't be afraid of the struggle that you may go through in terms of your assurance. Uh, because on the other side of it, in the Lord's good time and in the Lord's good will, if you look at the promises, hold on to the promises. Think, think of, think of uh, Jesus' own words. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's an infallible promise. So in your struggle, in your thirsting, in your hungering, after something that you're not quite sure that you have, look at the Lord. Look at the promises. And... Trust in him. It's easy to say, I understand it's easy to say, and it's hard to do. But this is infallible scripture that I'm speaking of. Turn to the scripture, turn to the word of God, look at the promises, hold on, and let the Lord bring you through these things. Trust in him. So, do as Peter did when he was sinking in the water. Help, Lord. You look up, you look to the Lord, you hold on to him. And uh, and however severe those those trials are, uh, when you come out the other side, uh, you'll be a new creature altogether. You really will be. So, trust in the Lord. This is what Luther had done, although it took him a long time. Anyhow, enough of that. We, we want to move on. Uh, bringing the scriptures, then, was Luther, was, I'm sorry, Melanchthon's great burden. And, as I said, that sums up the entire Reformation. Lefebvre and Farrell, it was their great burden too. Let's go to Paris just for a minute. Let's leave Melanchthon, go to Paris for a minute, and catch up with them. This is what Farrell had said. And this is another great saying. He said, to know Christ and his word is the only living and universal theology. He who knows this knows everything. He who knows this knows everything. Well, it's a great statement. Well, they, I'm sorry, uh, Lefebvre and Farrell had been in Paris, at the University of Paris there. They had been paying attention to whatever news was streaming in of Luther's goings-on in Germany. They had been following very closely. Uh, They knew of his condemnation at Worms. As soon as that condemnation of Worms was handed down and the Edict of Worms went out, the University of Paris, the, the Sorbonne, the Sorbonne was the the uh, faculty, the theological faculty of the University of Paris. And they wielded great, great political and religious power in France. Well, the Sorbonne denounced Luther and his doctrine uh, as, as soon as the Edict of Worms came out. So they were in keeping with the state's uh, promulgation. Well, this is what the Sorbonne said. If we tolerate these innovators, they will invade the whole body. And all will be over with our teaching, our traditions, and our places. Well, that, that has a, a very modern ring to it, I think. Uh, in essence, they were saying, we can't afford free speech. 
Uh, well, there was, no, there was no Bill of Rights, so uh, there was no guarantee of free speech, so they were free to suppress it, and suppress it they did. Not only suppress it, but they began to persecute those who did not toe the line and say the things that were expected to be said and to refrain from saying the things that were forbidden. No debate. There was no debate at all. Just a program of suppression and persecution. So Lefebvre uh, and Farrell began to feel the pressure. Uh, Lefebvre first, and then Farrell following him, fled out of the city of Paris to a little town called Meaux in France. It's, it's as you might expect, French... It's not going to be spelled M-O. It's a French word, so you know it's going to be really fancy. And it is. It's M-E-A-U-X, I think. It looks like mux. Muxlix. I don't know if you ever ate the cereal Muxlix. It was, it was pretty good. I remember it. But uh, Mo is the name of the little town. They traveled there. It was a little bit to the east of Paris. And uh, continued their work there with other exiled evangelicals. So they're underground at a certain level, uh, working, preaching the gospel. Lefebvre began preaching with increasing fervor, as often is exactly what happens when you begin to be persecuted. The intensity level begins to rise. The urgency of your work begins to increase. And this was, this was the spirit in which Lefebvre was preaching. This is what Lefebvre says at this time. Every priest should resemble that angel whom John saw in the apocalypse flying through the air holding the everlasting gospel in his hand and carrying it to every people, nation, tongue, and kingdom, saying, Come near, ye pontiffs, come, ye kings and nations, awake to the light of the gospel and inhale the heavenly life. The word of God is all-sufficient. And that last, that last phrase, the word of God is all-sufficient, then became the motto of the Mo circle of evangelicals. The word of God is all-sufficient. It was a, a banner as it were, that they uh, published everywhere. Well, Lefebvre not only preached, he began working. The scholar that he was, if you recall way back, we began with him uh, when we began to look at the Reformation. He had traveled to Italy and had become engrossed in the Greek manuscripts. So he was quite, quite the scholar. And now he began to translate from the Latin Vulgate, not from... Uh, Erasmus is Greek, but he translated from the Latin Vulgate, in this case, uh, into the language of the French people, the New Testament. He, he began with the Gospels, and then he moved into the New Testament. And uh, this was by the close of 1522 now, able to be in the hands of your average common Frenchman who had never seen the Word of God in his own language up to this point. Uh, major step forward, this translation, the, the publishing in the tongue of the people, is a major, major component of the Reformation, not just the preaching of the gospel that's in it. Well, at the same time, let's move from, from Paris and from Meaux uh, just for a moment across the channel into England. And even though, properly speaking, uh, as I said, we're not, we're not going to focus on the, the English Reformation, we want to bring in William Tyndale here, uh, who I think I mentioned last week or the week before very, very briefly. Uh, Tyndale was at this time, at the end of 1522, um, working at a little place called Little Sodbury in Gloucestershire, England. He was a very young scholar at this time, and he began working up in the attic of the room in which he was a tutor, uh, beginning to study the Greek manuscripts. 
himself, 1522. So he had, he had a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And he was studying it, comparing, and he began working on a translation himself. Uh, as I said, this is a story all, all on its own, which is, is an incredible adventure. Well, this is what Tyndale says at this time. Our priests in England, our priests have buried the testament of God and all their study is to keep it down, much like what we just heard from the Sorbonne in Paris. All their study is to keep it down, that it rise not again. But the hour of the Lord is come and nothing can hinder the word of God, just as nothing could hinder Jesus Christ of old from issuing from the tomb. I love how he, he puts together the resurrection of Christ and the going forth of his word, both uh, infallibly directed by the power of God himself. Well, Tyndale was soon driven out of England. He sought for a sponsor in England, but he met with nothing but, but cold faces and eventually persecution. And so after hiding in England for some time and working, he realized he had to actually leave the shores of, of his native land. He left them and he never returned. Never, never returned. Uh, but his New Testament returned. Across the channel in early 1526, so several years later now, uh, and came into the hands of every common man in England, uh, translated right out of Erasmus's Greek Testament. And that was really the beginning, in many ways, of the English Reformation, was Tyndale's arrival. It was actually in March of 1526 uh, in England, as it diffused all through the countryside. A tremendous moment. Like I said, Tyndale never did return. He was captured. He was betrayed by a supposed friend, was captured, thrown in prison, and eventually burned at the stake, strangled and burned at the stake. His last words, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, there as just before he was strangled with the chain that he was tied with, was Lord, open. Open the king of England's eyes. The king at that time was Henry VIII. So that's uh, just briefly to bring Tyndale into the picture with this great translation of the English Bible, which we're the heirs of. We are the heirs of. Every time we open our English Bible, well, let's come to Zwingli now. Spend a little bit more time with Zwingli. You remember when we introduced him a few weeks ago, his determination to, as he said, draw from the fountainhead of truth the doctrines of Jesus Christ. His goal was to imitate the life of Christ. And where could he find the record of the life of Christ but in the scriptures themselves, in the Gospels? So he began to, to, to learn Greek and began to read the New Testament in Greek to learn of the life of Christ. And here he began, if you recall, he began to find the, the, the huge discrepancy between the teaching of the church on the one hand and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles on the other. Uh, the, two, the two did not harmonize whatsoever. So he began this struggle, like Pharaoh had, this mighty struggle. I've been reared uh, under the tutelage of the church. I trust the church implicitly. But here is this discrepancy, which... Which way do I go? Who do I trust? And finally, he made the determination, I must stick to the word of God alone. I must look for God's will in his word alone. And so he did. And he began to discover, contrary to, to the dictums of the popes and the councils throughout the, the, the centuries of the church, that, and this is quoting Zwingli here, a wonderful statement, Christ, who was once offered upon the cross, he makes satisfaction for the sins of believers to all eternity. Now, there's a lot packed in that statement. Satisfaction. Christ makes satisfaction. He's, he's explicitly drawing away from 
the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance, which we looked at, it's composed of three parts, it was then and it is now, uh, of, of uh, con- contrition, confession, and satisfaction. That is satisfaction that the person makes to God. And so Ingley is deliberately taking that word out of the hands of the papists and returning it to its proper place in the New Testament. That is, Christ is the one who makes satisfaction. It is not creature, it is not a man, it is Christ who makes satisfaction. And not only so for the sins of believers, but he does so to all eternity. Again, striking at the doctrine of purgatory, that that satisfaction that we might try to, in the doctrine of penance, complete, it's never quite completed, according to the Catholic dogma, in this life. And so after we die, we must continue to purge ourselves of our uh, impurities and our transgressions and our sins until we are prepared through the fires of purgatory to enter paradiso itself. Uh, Zwingli is deliberately striking at that, saying Christ's satisfaction does this purging through all eternity. He covers the sins. He purges them because he bore them in his own body on the tree, as Peter says. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderfully succinct statement that strikes it very much. Well, Zwingli then, who had been a priest, became a pastor in the little town of Glarus. He spent close to a decade there, I believe, in Glarus. And in, in the end of 1518, he was called to a new post in the great city in Switzerland of Zurich. Zurich, Switzerland. It's one of, after Wittenberg, Zurich is probably the next great city of the Reformation. At this point, it becomes because Zwingli comes and begins preaching the gospel in a Reformation way. So you have Wittenberg in Germany, Zurich in Switzerland. Later on, you would have Strasbourg, you would have uh, Geneva, of course, and you had other cities popping up as they converted from Catholicism to the doctrines of grace and the Reformation. So here's Zwingli at Zurich. On New Year's Day, 1519, Zwingli called the city people together and announced his intentions as their new pastor. And this this quote is in your handout. Zwingli says, The life of Christ has been too long hidden from the people. I shall preach upon the whole of the gospel of St. Matthew, chapter after chapter, according to the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, without human commentaries, drawing solely from the fountains of Scripture, sounding its depths, comparing one passage with another, and seeking for understanding by constant and earnest prayer. It is to God's glory, to the praise of His only Son, to the real salvation of souls, and to their edification in the true faith that I shall consecrate my ministry. Well, he began expounding Matthew, verse by verse, and in doing so, his real goal was the expounding of Christ. In expounding Matthew, he was expounding Christ. That's the whole point. It is to Christ, Zwingli says, that I desire to lead you. To Christ, who is the true source of salvation. His divine word is the only food that I wish to set before your hearts and souls. He doesn't have his own program, as it were. He is simply dishing up the meal of the gospel, the food of the gospel, which is Christ himself to his people. That's a true shepherd, an under-shepherd of the true shepherd, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, he finished Matthew. Uh, After that, he took up the book of Acts. Then he went through Paul's epistles. Eventually, he made it to the Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This was his method, sequential, expository preaching. Uh, 
is, is what he was undertaking. And it was entirely new to the congregation who was used to, to the set homilies, little, little lessons uh, interspersed with some scripture, but, but mostly kind of, kind of formal moral lessons about how to do better, how to, um, uh, to carry quote in se est, remember, to, to do all that within you lies. That was the essence of the homilies that they would have heard. And here now the life of Christ is being expounded, the doctrines of Christ by the apostles. Well, their first reaction was, this is an innovation. The city fathers who were there in the congregation complained to Zwingli. This is an innovation. What are you doing? This is wrong. Zwingli said, no, no, it's not new. And he took them back to early church fathers from the 3rd, 4th century, Chrysostom, Augustine, who were, who were biblical expositors par excellence, going through chapter and verse of the word of God. He said, I'm not doing anything new. I'm following the example of the early church fathers. They consented, said, okay, go, go ahead. We will not stop you. So week after work, he set forth the word of God, the work of Christ. All my labors, he says, have no other aim than to proclaim to men the treasures of happiness that Christ has purchased for us, that all might take refuge in the Father through the death of the Son. And this is what his people said. We have never heard the like of this before. This man is a preacher of the truth. They began being converted to his way of preaching. They began to hunger and thirst for the doctrines of the gospel as little by little, week by week, they began hearing the word of God expounded. It was, as Davigny says in the quote at the top of your handout, this mysterious power that was beginning to have its effect. It's this invisible spiritual power. It's the Holy Spirit bringing the things of Christ to those who are under the ministry of his living word. Well, besides his preaching, what was a typical week for Zwingli? I just want to give us a window into his Monday through Saturday kind of habit and way of life. Every morning, he would get up from dawn till about 10 in the morning. He was in prayer and Bible study. That's what he did every single morning, with very few exceptions. After lunch, he went on a long walk in the town of Zurich. He would stop anyone who was out uh, mowing the lawn, weeding, whatever they were doing, uh, he would stop and he would chat with them. These are his people in, in his town of Zurich. He considered them uh, to be their people and he was their under-shepherd, under-Christ. He ate and drank with everyone. He would come in if they would invite him in. He would sit down at the table with them and they would talk about their concerns. Wonderful. Uh, his enemies made this lamentation. They said he invited the country folk to dine with him he, and walked with them. He talked to them of God. He put the devil in their hearts and his books in their pockets. So they, they do not like what's going on at all. Uh, after supper, then, Zwingli, uh, after a good meal, he would settle in to write letters, often uh, as late as midnight, under the candlelight. He would be sitting at his desk, the candle burning, writing letters uh, to other ministers all across Europe. Well, the faithful in Rome were not idle. They were aroused. They were alarmed. They warned the people. They said, let no one seduce you from the church. And that's telling. Not, not as the Apostle Paul said, let no one seduce you from Christ. But let no one seduce you from the church. That is, the leaders in the church who are telling you what to do and what to believe. So, Zwingli was forced into a, in a predicament, very much like Luther, that he 
had no interest in doing, but it began to be his duty. That was not just to preach, but to dispute with the naysayers, with the enemies of the gospel. And so he prayed this when uh, a disputation was set that he was to appear at in the town of Zurich. He prayed, Oh, Jesus, you see how the wicked stun thy people's ears with their clamors. You know how from my childhood I have hated all dispute, and yet you have not ceased to impel me into the conflict. I know everything that can befall me. My own strength is nothingness itself. It was Wingley's prayer. And so this disputation was set. This was not in the same sense as Luther's, where you had Rome pressing down upon him. This, this was a disputation that really was a debate between church fathers who were opposed to Zwingli, uh, uh, but Rome was not involved in this at all. It was, I don't say that it was a friendly debate, but it was more of an academic debate. It was not a trial. Well, Zwingli's opponents accused him of disobeying church councils. You're despising, you're disregarding, you're disobeying, casting reproach on church councils by your particular methods and by your preaching. The church assembled, they said. The church assembled in council and in the name of the Holy Ghost cannot err. So they're, they're, they're contesting here for an infallibility of church councils. Zwingli says, I say that what is as true as the Gospels and what is in accordance with the divine spirit, uh, these things one is bound to obey, but not what is decreed merely in accordance with human reason. Well, his opponents objected. They said, if it wasn't for the church councils, think about it. If it wasn't for the church councils, say, in the early, in the third and fourth centuries, then the opinions of Arius, the heretic, and, and Pelagius, the heretic, would rule in the church today. So we have the church councils to thank for that. And you agree with that? And Zwingli said, well, yes, I do. And so I shall do, said Zwingli, as the fathers who conquered did. They did so not by human understanding, but by the scriptures. For when they were disputing with Arius, they did not accept men, but the scriptures, allowing them to judge, that is, allowing the scriptures to judge. <clears throat> and the scriptures interpreted the scriptures, not the fathers, the scriptures. Thus they overcame the Arians and the Pelagians, for the dear fathers themselves confirm their writings with the scriptures. And where they depend upon their own thoughts, they err readily and generally. And that's very true. There's much in the early fathers that you, you can look at and say they erred readily and generally. But it was when they departed from the scriptures, not when they were sticking to them. It was when they depended on their own thoughts. Well, uh, I'll just read one of the quotes that, uh, from the early church fathers that Zwingli made use of, among many others, actually. And it's the, one, it's the top one in your handout of Cyril. Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century said, Concerning the divine and sacred mysteries of the faith, we ought not to deliver even the most casual remark without the Holy Scriptures. Do not then believe me because I tell you these things, unless you receive from the Holy Scriptures the proof of what is set forth. For this salvation, which is of our faith, is not by ingenious reasonings, but by proof from the Holy Scriptures. Well, this erring, generally, led eventually in the early church to a gradual departure from that early position of the early fathers. And with every passing generation, uh, the church assumed to itself new doctrines, new powers that you can't find in the apostles themselves. They called it unwritten tradition. They put it on par with the written 
Word of God. Those are the two things, Scripture and tradition. One's written, one's unwritten. This remains the position of Rome to this day. Uh, if you remember, I, we, we had quoted from the Catechism a few weeks ago. This is the, the Roman Catholic position. It was then, it is now. The church, quote, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Well, Zwingli proved from Rome's own authorities in 1523, that it wasn't the reformers after all that were the innovators, it was the partisans of Rome. And he did so by going back to the early church and showing exactly their position on scripture versus tradition. And the real proof was that it was the reformers and it wasn't Rome that were going forth with apostolic zeal, preaching the word and publishing it. That, that was the effective proof that the reformers weren't the innovators, but it was Rome who was suppressing the truth as it's found in the scriptures. Well, this brings us back to Luther. So we want, to, we want to finish up with Luther. Leave Zurich and Zwingli and come to Luther and the Wartburg. The confinement there for those 11 months all by himself, uh, he said, tried him more severely than all the battles that he had done with Rome up to this point. Instead of being fervent in spirit, Luther said, my passions take fire. I live in idleness I, and in sleep and in indolence. Then a thought began to possess his mind. And it was the same, same thought that had possessed Lefebvre's and William Tyndale. And that was, oh, that this book would be in the language of the people. And so he thought, I have all this time in the Wartburg. I know the Greek. It's at my fingertips. And so he began working, night and day, again by candlelight, uh, translating the scriptures into the, tongue of, into the language of the people. And this was indeed out of Erasmus' Greek Testament. Uh, it appeared late in 1522, came off the presses, and now the German people had in their own tongue the language of the scripture itself. Well, the common people now were beginning to see what they never saw before. There it is. There it is. And the church, its position transformed very quickly from being the judge of all of these things now to being on trial, being found in the balances A.G. Dickens, one of the great historians of the Reformation, says this, The mighty church was being put on trial before an even mightier tribunal. The mass sale of the vernacular scriptures proved the most irrevocable act of the Reformation. You can't go back from that once it's in the hands of the people. It's a tremendous, tremendous moving go, movement going on. Well, one more thing about Luther. While he was in the Wartburg, events were still rushing forward in Wittenberg. They had, they had gotten like sharks with human blood in their mouth. Many zealots in Wittenberg uh, began getting this anti-Catholic taste in their mouth. We can throw the Catholics out and the rule of Catholicism. Well, oftentimes the reaction becomes an overreaction. And that's what began happening in Luther's absence in the town of Wittenberg. With the help of some self-styled prophets that had come from the neighboring town of Zwickau. They called themselves the Zwickau Prophets. And they came in with Luther gone, they came into Wittenberg and began preaching up uh, an, a, 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 a revolution, as it were. Not a reformation, but a revolution. Uh, they began talking about the Spirit and how the Spirit is greater than the Word even, and that we need to follow the Spirit. Again, a contemporary ring here, certainly. Well, Karlstadt, 
began to become infected with the, the, the spirit, as it were, of the Zwickau prophets. Uh, if Rome, if you remember, if, if, if Rome had rejected Sola Scripture, which they did for the sake of unwritten tradition, now Karlstadt, under the influence of the Zwickau prophets, began pas- pushing past Sola Scriptura onto the other side of it, not stopping short of it, but going beyond it to what he would have called the unwritten impulse of the spirit. Well, again, this rings very modern in our ears. The Zwickau prophets in Karlstadt began arguing that, that keeping to the letter of Scripture was bondage and was legalism, uh, whereas true freedom was to follow this inner voice and follow those impulses. You remember Luther, quite to the contrary, had found freedom uh, not by following what was, was inward, but precisely in every jot and tittle of the scripture that was in front of him. My conscience, he said, is captive to the word of God. You see the irony there. Luther was the man who knew true gospel freedom. Well, nevertheless, Karl Stat and the Zwickau prophets went on. We must fall, they said, upon every ungodly practice and overthrow them all in a day. In a single day, we just have to level it all. Images and altars were smashed. Wittenberg descended into a ray. Melanchthon was there. You remember Melanchthon, timid Melanchthon. He, he saw what was going on and began just being full of fear. And he didn't know what to do. I don't want to grieve the spirit on the one hand, but I see something's not right here on the other. So he was very indecisive. Who shall judge them other than Martin, he said. I do not know. Well, word reached Luther. Luther sent back this message. Ask these prophets whether they have felt those spiritual torments which accompany a real regeneration. When these men talk of sweetness and of being transported into the third heaven, do not believe them. Divine majesty does not speak face to face with men, for God is a consuming fire. And the dreams and the visions of the saints are terrible. Well, the prophets, in return, mocked Luther. They called him names like Brother Fattened Swine, Dr. Soft Life, uh, Lutheran, Lutheran Pope of the Scripture Perverters. These were all names that they gave to Luther. Well, on Sunday morning, uh, Luther appeared. He left, he left the Wartburg, walked into Wittenberg, and appeared Sunday morning at the pulpit. And everybody was in shock. What is Dr. Martin going to say? He opened the scriptures, read out of the book of Acts, reminded them how Paul, when he came to Athens, and they had all their false gods, how Paul, the apostle, walked past them, didn't lay a hand on one of them, but instead began to irresistibly preach the truth of God. And this is what Luther said. God is opposed to the Mass. It ought to be abolished and replaced by the supper of the Gospel. But let no one be torn away from it by force. Our first object must be to win men's hearts. For that purpose, we must preach the Gospel. Today, the Word will fall into one heart, tomorrow into another. And it will operate in such a manner that each one will withdraw from the mass and abandon it. God lays hold upon the heart. And when the heart is taken, all is one. God does more by His Word alone than you and I and all the world by our united strength. And then he invoked his own example and said, Look what I have done. I stood up against the Pope, indulgences, papists, but without violence or tumult. I put forward God's Word. I preached and wrote. This was all I did. And yet, while I was asleep, 
Or while I was seated at table with Melanchthon drinking our Wittenberg beer, the word that I had preached overthrew popery, and yet I did nothing. The word alone did all. Well, that was Luther's sermon. By the end of the week, order had been restored. Oh, what joy, his people said. Oh, what joy has Dr. Martin's return diffused among us. It is clear as the sun that the Spirit of God is in him. Well, we'll close there. Uh, pick up where we left off next week. Lord willing. Uh, you're dismissed.